Welcome to This is Democracy, the podcast where we discuss the ongoing conflict over how much democracy and for whom there should be in America. My name is Thomas Zimmer. I'm a historian at Georgetown University. I'm Lily Mason. I'm a political scientist at Johns Hopkins University and the SNF Agora Institute. And we are recording this on Wednesday, April 5th in the afternoon. In the middle of what has already been a really eventful week in American politics and American democracy. And we are here to hopefully, I don't know, process it all, make sense of it all. Um, Two weeks ago in episode 19, when we had just found out that Trump was likely going to be indicted, we we tackled the ex-president's legal situation and also said we didn't want every week to be a kind of latest in Trump world show. However, as Trump has now indeed been indicted, um, had to come to New York City, to the Manhattan Criminal Court, stand before a judge and plead not guilty, we have to start there. We'll talk about what that all means, how important, or maybe not all that important this all is. But we do not want to make this all about Trump. In fact, we want to situate Trump's legal woes and what happened in Manhattan yesterday in the context of what else has been going on. We'll talk about the Supreme Court election in Wisconsin that also happened yesterday. We'll talk about Tennessee, where Republicans are trying to expel three Democratic lawmakers from the state assembly for having the audacity to take the side of pro-gun reform protesters. And maybe we'll talk about some other developments as well. This is not supposed to be a news roundup, not going to be a comprehensive overview of everything that's going on in America, more an attempt to reflect on how we should think about all of these things in relation to each other, how to process all of this, what we should be focusing our attention on, how we can make sure we don't miss the forest for the trees when so many things are happening all at once, so many levels. That is the goal for today. And I mean, I I think... Before we started recording, um, we, we we briefly talked about it. Neither of us is necessarily um, already fully there, where we we have it all sorted out and, and and know exactly how to you know make sense of it all. But but maybe by the end of the conversation, we are okay. All right, let's get into it and let's start with Donald Trump. So Donald Trump was uh, finally indicted and we got to see uh, what the charges were. They were there were 34 uh, felony charges, all related to payments from Trump to his attorney, Michael Cohen. And uh, there were, I think, 11 payments. Each of them was in a different month. Somehow it adds up to 34. Um, the idea is that it's a felony because the payments were made. First of all, they were they were not recorded correctly, and they uh, were were paid in order to commit a crime, which makes it a felony charge instead of a misdemeanor. Uh, that crime was one of many things. One of which is interfering in the election. Uh, Trump interfering in the election by withholding this this information from the public and from the voters, with the assistance of David Pecker at the National Enquirer, who did a catch and kill scheme, which means that they got the information and then they promised not to report it. And then presumably also it's it's possible that there were tax crimes that were also intended with these payments. So basically the idea is that Trump was messing around with with these payments. He was trying to hide them and he was also trying to save on taxes and he was also trying to manipulate the outcome of the 2016 election by withholding information. So Trump was driven to the the courthouse. He had to go in person and declare himself not guilty on these charges. He was warned by the judge uh, that he needed to be careful about the things that he was going to say after, um, that if he makes statements that are likely to incite violence or civil unrest, he could be in more trouble. So the things that he says from now on are uh, within the realm of part of this case. He's not allowed to incite violence, obviously, but now that it's related to a, a, a crime that he is under investigation for, it will Apparently, the, the punishments will be harsher. So that's the situation. We've, we sort of saw him. He showed up on, on Monday, um, stayed in Trump Tower, went to, went to court, and then flew immediately home to Mar-a-Lago, where he gave a speech, which was basically a long list of his regular grievances. They're out to get me. The other cases are also stupid and out to get me. And um, to their credit, actually, MSNBC, uh, which I watched for the first time in a really long time. I've turned on the TV and watched like uh-huh. cable news. Rachel Maddow specifically said, like, it is not in our interest to broadcast false information. And so until and unless Trump says something newsworthy, we're not going to 
well, we'll we're watching it. And so we'll tell you if he says something newsworthy, but we're not just going to let him talk, so, which is a new thing that gave me a little bit of optimism and hope for the future. Everyone else seemed to carry it live and sure. played the entire thing. <laughs> But Trump did not incite violence, so that was also good, right? He apparently was, at the very least, in that moment, remembered what the judge told him. He had been asking, sort of nudging his supporters to show up in New York and protest and and perhaps um, disrupt things or even become violent. And Marjorie Taylor Greene was there, uh, you know, she was she was you know trying to make a spectacle of herself and got shouted down by rowdy New Yorkers, which is what she should have not been surprised that, that was going to happen. Um, but the but there weren't we didn't see a January 6th type situation. We didn't see, uh, you know, there were people on discussion groups online that were kind of encouraging each other to do random acts of, of violence. Um, but but there was no organized or coordinated effort to to seriously protest or disrupt these proceedings. So it wasn't as bad as it could have been. I think it wasn't as 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 violent as it could have been. It wasn't violent at all. We've seen this. It is an historic. I, I hate calling this an historic event where you know a president is indicted. It's historic because he committed. He you know uniquely committed a bunch of crimes. Uh, and now we're in the aftermath. We're just going to have to see where this goes, right? We've got Republicans sort of you know replying about this, talking about it, you know, suggesting a lot of people on Fox News are suggesting that Democrats should now do immediately the exact same thing and, and indict Biden in a southern state for some you know made up crime because they believe that this is a made up crime for Trump. Um, but also good to keep in mind that we have like, you know, four more of these coming potentially, right? We, this is the only the first one, the first indictment. And it's possible that this indictment, the fact that it actually went through would, will embolden the future prosecutors, uh, to not be shy about indicting a president because it won't be the first time anymore. Um, so this could open up a different direction in the future for, for how Trump is prosecuted for his other arguably more serious crimes, like manipulating the Georgia election and um, and inciting an insurrection against the country. So, Thomas, what are you what are you thinking now that we've seen the indictment and we are officially in the new world of of post a president has been indicted? And the country has not been destroyed yet. The country right. has not been torn apart yet. The country is it's still there. It's um, <laughs> it's still a, United States of America is still a thing. Can you believe it? Yeah. Um, and the majority of Americans approve. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean. I'll start with um, some subjective impressions and, and, and feelings, if, if you will. Now, I thought the whole thing was remarkably anticlimactic. Mm -hmm. And I mean this in a good way. So since the end of last week, when we learned he, he was indicted, he, he had to come, he was going to be arrested, he had to come and see the judge. There was all this um, speculation punditry about what's going to happen and is there going to be violence? How is Trump going to make this um, a massive show? How is he going to make sure he will be seen as a victim of the mean establishment, whatever? And then the day came and it was rather boring. Mm -hmm. um, I want to emphasize something that I've seen Nicole Hammer say in her CNN column, and I, I saw John Gans wrote it in his fantastic newsletter, Unpopular Front, so this is not at all like an innovative new kind of observation for me, that they both emphasize the ordinariness of, of these proceedings and how ordinary Trump seemed. Um, he didn't make a spectacle of it. He was just sitting there. He was listening to the judge and not doing much. This is the way it's supposed to be, right? The legal process a trial should not rile up people. It should do the opposite, right? This is a way we have given ourselves to deflect conflict or to, to kind of like channel it into an orderly kind of process of rules and regulations. It's not supposed to be spectacular or whatever. It was exactly the way it is supposed to be. And that's good. And, and we saw Trump as a rather ordinary, someone who had to plead not guilty, you know, like, mm -hmm. like so many other thousands of people do all the time. I think that's good. I think that's good. I think we should embrace that and maybe stop a little bit with these sort of self-fulfilling prophecies of constantly talking about how crazy insane this all is and how it's going to tear the country apart and how it's only going to be a massive Trump spectacle, whatever. No, I mean, just look at what happened there. It, 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 was, it was none of those things. And who knows what's going to happen next. But, but so far, I'm, I was, if, if that makes sense, I was impressed and, and some, somewhat relieved by uh, how boring and ordinary it all was. 
And I think that Alvin Bragg did a good job of explaining uh, sort of how this is the type of crime that he prosecutes all the time. They prosecute white collar crimes in Manhattan because Manhattan is the center of the financial, you know, entire world, basically. And this is a crime that lots of people commit and lots of people are are convicted of. So it's not that they're making something up out of, you know, out of nothing. It's not that he had to invent a new thing. Um it's it's the type of thing that they do all the time. And Trump is guilty or is accused of being guilty of of doing of, you know, messing with his money in this way that is illegal. Um, so I think that that was, you know, it was it was very calmly um, delivered. Uh, the it was pretty calmly received, you know, to from all from all the reporting that I've heard, Trump actually was walked into that courtroom sort of looking scared and and humiliated and not defiant and uh proud so it's almost like wow that was like you can make him look scared <laughs> you know this is he's come across as this guy who is impossible to to stop or to punish or even to shame and and it almost seemed like he felt a little bit ashamed not of what he had done but the fact that he was there right the fact that someone had got him and he's he's been through this entire first of all, entire professional life where he's regularly committing financial crimes conceivably. Um, there are certainly plenty of records that indicate that he has, that he has um, been doing shady dealings in his businesses before he was president. He wasn't held to account in any of those. And then he spent his entire presidency um, getting in trouble multiple times by, you know, being indicted with the, with the Mueller investigation, with, you know, all of these different investigations into him and every single one of them he got away from never having to go talk to a judge. And this is the first time that he actually got caught in the scope of, of the crimes that he has committed. It is it is a very, you know, specific and somewhat small one. But but it kind of doesn't matter because the fact that he was so cowed by a judge, um, the fact that he had been really just trying to avoid this moment for much of his life and he finally ended up there and it does, it did seem to upset him. I think that suggests that, you know, it is possible to, <laughs> to hold people accountable. Uh, it, it doesn't always happen and it rarely happens when it's someone as prominent as the president of the United States, for example, um, or just even a rich white guy. But but it is, it you know, it is possible. Certainly, I think that our criminal justice system, the inequalities of our criminal justice system are laid bare when we see, you know, how how long it takes and how difficult it is to hold someone accountable who is in Donald Trump's position versus, you know, a random kid on the street who's caught, you know, with with some with drugs in his pocket. Right. Like that's a very different justice is swift in those in those latter scenarios. But but I do think that it's. Uh, it's an interesting thing to sort of see everyone watch this occur and and have this kind of collective understanding that like, you know, it's it's a good thing that our law applies equally to everybody and it should and it did and it worked and we didn't have riots in the streets and it's, you know, we're still just a apparently a, a society with laws that are enforceable to some sometimes. <laughs> you know, when you said um, Trump looked decidedly not defiant he was not mm -hmm. like being a a defiant martyr hero type figure i i was thinking um certainly in sort of the the german historical imaginary the, the parallel that always comes up is adolf hitler standing mm -hmm. trial after his uh, failed beer hall putsch in, in 1923 so, so in, in november 1923 hitler tried to seize control of the young weimar republic um by staging sort of a, a, a revolutionary coup type thing, it, it completely failed. Um, he he was arrested um, and and then accused of treason. And but he used the trial, and he was given a chance to do that by a sympathetic right wing sort of judiciary and, and, and judges who kind of you know were kind of on board with his <laughs> with his uh, um, uh, take on on the Weimar the democracy. He used that to present himself as like. A, a savior figure who, yes, absolutely wanted to bring the, the bring the young republic down because the republic was un-German and, and and he was the one to save and, and protect the uh, the German people and 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 that that sort of thing. And it actually through the trial, it kind of 
he rose in standing in public. Standing. His public standing rose through the trial. He became somewhat of a sort of a, a folk hero on the right through his kind of using the trial to present himself as this sort of heroic figure that would stand up to these uh, demonic kind of <laughs> Republican Democratic authorities. I guess this is the the fear, right, that someone like Trump might be able to use this as a platform to do this. But, but look, here's the thing. It didn't happen. Like, there's no need to pretend, oh, no, this is going to be Hitler in 1923 all over again. No, why? It was just, he was just sitting there. And he, he, he certainly doesn't seem thrilled. Like, that was not, I mean, look, already they're like, of course, they're selling all sorts of merchandise with mm-hmm. pretending he's, I don't know, like, but it, it doesn't matter. We should, we should, we should, um, again, we should embrace this in, in its, in its sort of boring, ordinary, no, he's now has to stand trial and he had to listen to the judge and that's what he did. But that's good. And, and let's not, let's not do the, all oh, these populists and demagogues. They know how to use the stage. If they're giving a sta- if they're given a stage, they'll, they will use it to their advantage. I think this has always been the case with Trump. There's a general, we overestimate the genius of Donald Trump, the sort of the genius demagogue who like he, he can dominate every room and all that sort of stuff. It was always, it was never true. Um, yes, there is some sort of populist demagogic sort of quality to, to, to what he does. And, and he's quite good at, I don't know, being quote unquote entertaining in a sort of perverse kind of, kind of bravado, stupid bravado way. But, but we have to be a little careful with not making him into a larger than life figure, and and you know if you give him any chance, he will just turn the table on us. No, let let the, let the process play out. I, I think I think it's actually good. We haven't seen him in the trial yet, so we don't yeah. know what he's going to do it in trial. But I do think it's important to remember that a lot of the ways that he got out of being of accountability previously was just that he was the president. Yeah, right. I mean, like crimes directly related to this case that Michael Cohen went to prison for, Trump could have been sent to prison for if he hadn't been president at the time. So this also kind of uh, reemphasizes the importance of not putting Trump back in the White House, right? The only way for him to be held accountable for crimes is for him not to be the president. Um, and, and the fact that he, you know, I think that he did kind of claim credit for him getting away with all of these crimes during his presidency but it was partly just because he, the sitting president is one of the most legally protected people in the world. I mean, like he can, you know, you can do a lot of things when you're president. You're not allowed to be immediately tried for. And and that's the closest you can get is impeachment. And he was impeached twice. Right. I mean, and with a partisan with, you know, with with extremely partisan uh, uh, House and Senate, you end up not being able to convict him because it's not a legal vote. It's a political vote. If he were president again, he would be protected again. And um, so he's, you know, he claims credit for that. I do think that one unhelpful direction, this is a tough place for for like right wing media, right? Because it's like nobody is arguing that he didn't do these things. Um, there it's there's not a lot of um, uh, there's not a lot of of people saying like absolutely impossible that Trump paid hush money to a porn star. Like no one's saying that like this is un- inconceivable that Trump would ever do something like this. Like I've not heard a single person argue that uh, among his supporters. So instead, what they're saying is um, now that Trump has been indicted, we should indict a prominent Democrat. Just right. period. Just like that must yeah. logically follow yeah. because. It's not about the law. It's not about the facts of the case. It's just about politics. And if it's just about politics, then we should say the next thing that should happen is that conservative prosecutors should indict Hunter Biden or Hillary Clinton or Joe Biden. And Charlie Kirk uh, tweeted, we need a prominent Democrat criminal in handcuffs, indictments and perp walks. Will will a single Republican AG or DA step up? they are uh, they are considering this to just be entirely revenge rather than a legal proceeding. And that seems to be the main defense here. It's not that Trump is innocent. It's not that Trump didn't commit crimes. it's It's that he shouldn't be he shouldn't be held accountable. And if he is held accountable, then we should hold a famous Democrat accountable, regardless of whether they committed crimes or not. And I have to say, this is not just something from the right, right? This is also, Something that you hear from sort of on the center and even from liberal commentators say, oh, 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 um, 
what happens if, if we make this into a political kind of process. The first thing is, this seems to assume that there are all these right-wing like DAs and, 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 and judges out there who like, so far have been holding back. Like mm-hmm. they would totally like indict Joe Biden for like crazy made up something, something, but they haven't done that yet because they're holding back because out of what respect for norms and the system or whatever, that seems highly unlikely to me. Um, so the other thing is about this, oh, it's just about politics. And, and that is something that I've now seen very much on the center and the most liberal commentators. Oh, I'm a little uncomfortable with this because there is there is certainly a political element to this. To that, I can only say, of course, there is a political element <laughs> yeah. to this. Of course, regardless of how you see this in a normative sense, that's just inevitable. First of all, it's political because we are talking about a person of political power and sort of high political standing. Of course, that makes it inherently a political proceeding in that way. Um, that's not the same as saying it's a political witch hunt. It's just saying it has profound political implications, of course. And then also it is political in the sense that, um, yes, of course, there is more attention, legal attention to what Donald Trump has been up to because he became president of the United States. Yeah, yes, that is true, right? I mean, I, I mm-hmm. think I think someone said, um, I think it was Jonathan Shade. Um, not to get into that thing again, but I think I think he wrote something like, "Oh, if Trump had not been president, um, him paying hush money to his porn star mistress, that would have never been a big deal." Yeah, man, but he was president. That's the whole thing, like it, right. And the hush like, money was in order to it was in order to get him to be president. Yes, right. It's and, like and, it wasn't just to hide from his wife. And and even you know even in a general sense, if if is it. Is it feasible or or even plausible to say that a DA would normally just look at this and say, I don't care about this guy. I don't want to go after that guy. Who cares? And now someone says, well, this guy is one of the most politically powerful people in the country. Yeah, I mean, I, we should probably take a closer look at what he's up to. That's just, of course, mm-hmm. right? I mean, again, like regardless of where you stand normatively, I, I would say in a normative sense, that's good, right? Mm-hmm. The higher you the higher you rise in terms of power, there should be more attention more to what scrutiny. you're doing. There should be more uh scrutiny, legal scrutiny. Um, so I think that's good. But even if you think it's not good, it is still entirely like what else are you expecting? Like, yeah. of course. So in that sense, yes, there is a political element, but can we please we as in those who consider themselves to be in the small D democratic camp? Can we please just make sure that we're separating between political dimensions of this whole thing and political witch hunt? Those are not the same thing. And just because there's a political dimension doesn't mean this is all bad and should not happen. Right, right. We have, we do have uh, laws and they are supposed to apply to everyone. And Trump himself has been the focus of a lot of attention because he was an extremely powerful person manipulating those laws. So the idea that we hold him account for that is probably a solid one, I think. There is, um, if if we can maybe just quickly talk about media coverage a little more, there's two tropes, two general tropes in the mainstream media coverage that have been, I think, really unhelpful and really misleading. One is the unprecedented trope, and one is the, um, this is a test for democracy kind of trope. I mean... And I'm talking specifically about the way the New York Times framed this when, when the, when it became when it was made public that Trump was indicted and had to had to come to Manhattan. Um, so first, the unprecedented thing. Look, that is in a narrow sense is true, right? It has never happened before. No president or ex-president has ever been indicted. So yes, it is unprecedented. But if you frame it as oh 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 oh, oh something unprecedented is happening, it evokes a sense of threat. Something Mm -hmm. like, oh, this is not okay. This is like, this is going to, this is sort of a a danger to the, I don't know, the unity or the the fabric of the nation, whatever. And and that is, um, that's a problem. Like, why why frame it in in such, again, like, you know, now now he has been indicted and, and the country is still, seems to be still going. The other one is this, this is the test for democracy kind of framing that drives me nuts. I mean. 
you think now is the moment that now is sort of where the dangerous mm -hmm. moment happens? It is the indictment that's the test for democracy, not when this guy was elevated and elected president. It is now. It was not when he was inciting violence and a tried to, uh, uh, you know, tried to nullify a democratic election. That was not the test for democracy. Now is the test for democracy. Look, to the extent that this is a test for American democracy, it is, it is for the same reason that it's always been, which is the radicalization of the Republican Party to the point where they are united behind this guy. That is the test for American democracy. Not the fact that some DA in Manhattan decided I'm going to indict him. Yeah, they, the New York Times also had this incredible headline uh, that was Biden has the Oval Office, but Trump has center stage, right? Which is just <laughs> like the perfect encapsulation of looking in the wrong place, you know, like the media being obsessed with their own role in in politics and all of this and, and worrying about attention uh, rather than actual content. Um Jay, Jay Rosen has actually been tweeting. He's a he's a, a journalist and uh, he's at NYU also. He's been tweeting a lot about how we should pay attention to the odds, not sorry, the stakes, not the odds. Uh, so instead of you know what is it, what are the chances this will happen? What is, you know what are the stakes of this happening? And and this is you know this is an example not of the odds and not sorry not of either really, but of of just sort of like talking about it as a game, right? Talking about it as who gets the most attention. Who are we paying attention to as, as a news organization? Let's write a story about us paying attention to one person more than a, another person. You know, like the the New York Times have some control over who has center stage, uh, and and they they don't they're not really they're not really taking um, responsibility for that in this framing. The framing is we can't control who's getting media attention. It's just actually it's just organically happening, yeah. yeah. And it's it's nobody's fault that we were watching. Trump's Trump's uh, plane land, and then Trump's car car caravan take him, and then Trump walking out of an of a hotel room, and then Trump walking into the court, and then Trump's uh, cars driving to LaGuardia, and then Trump getting onto a plane, and then Trump getting off a plane, and Trump's plane is landing. Like none of that is newsworthy, none of it, and and all of our news organizations were glued to who's getting out of the Trump airplane on the tarmac right now. It was so much attention that did not need to be there. The media decided that it was the story they needed to be telling at the moment. And then the New York Times take on all of that is he got a lot of attention. It's this like self-fulfilling thing where people are constantly saying this guy doesn't really deserve all this uh, all this attention. This isn't that big of a deal and then there and then we spend all day with CNN with a constant stream of which vehicle is Trump in right now? And it's just like literally videos of traffic. Like it's just traffic on the BQE. Like that was all that we were seeing. It was just like Trump's cars driving along and like being stuck in traffic and making traffic. And like, it wasn't in any way newsworthy, but, but, but then, but there is such a, it was like the OJ trial, right? It's like, sorry, not the right. OJ trial, the OJ, the OJ, uh, uh, pursuit. There's yes. just this, as if he was going to like make a run for it, right? Like as if Trump was going to, like his car was going to like pull away and like drive off to New Jersey. And like, it's not, it, it's not dramatic. It's not high stakes. It's just like, this is all they can do, you know? Like it's, if they don't do it, then they're scared that someone else will like, I don't know, get, get more attention. I'm not sure exactly what the, what the idea here is, but it's very, it's very much the media feeding itself. And I, and we're seeing that, I think, and we're going to see a lot more of it because honestly, we're, there are going to be more cases. Um, yeah. Trump's going to have to fly to other courtrooms yeah, in yeah, Atlanta yeah. and other places. And it's, you know, it'll happen again. I just, I don't, I don't see the media learning a lot of lessons uh, from, from the last six years. I mean, it's, it's very reminiscent of the 2016 coverage of Trump rallies when they would show the empty podium before he would ever like, <laughs> It's just literally an empty podium. And then you had someone say, oh, any minute now, he, he must be close. He's coming. You know? mm -hmm. Okay. Um, there's one other thing that, that, that I want to maybe get off my chest. I think we've said it every time we talked about Trump's, let's call it legal troubles, which is a euphemism, but whatever. Um, be it regarding January 6th or be it regarding this. Every time we said, look, 
there's probably not going to be a legal solution to a, what is inherently a political problem. And so we, we get the, you know, I, I, I always emphasize, I get the kind of the slight feeling of un, un, unease with a certain part of the liberal spectrum. So focusing so much on supposed sort of legal savior figures, right? Elvin Bragg is now going to save us from Trumpism. That's mm-hmm. not going to happen. Okay. But I am getting increasingly frustrated with all these of, oh, no, we shouldn't have been indicted for this hand wringing. Um, and I'm not talking about the right and not even talking about the center right. I'm talking about liberal legal experts and commentators. I saw Ian Milheiser on Vox.com saying, no, this is not good. He shouldn't have been indicted for this. And then Rick Hazen wrote uh, in his latest slate column, wrote the same thing. No, no, he shouldn't have been indicted for this. I want to be very clear. These are people I read, people I listen to, people I respect. But the, the Hazen, the, the latest, his latest column in Slate was really, again, he, he started off by making a, a very, what I thought, interesting uh, um, sort of nuanced case for why this is a legally tricky thing, right? And, and might, might be thrown out by a judge or might lead to Trump walking through, right? Um, and he thinks it won't work because of a, a sort of a tricky legal theory behind it. Maybe it's even ill-advised. Okay, that's all fine. But then, then comes the politics, right? So then he talks about, oh, the politics of it all. And here's a direct, I'm quoting from the call. It is said that if you go after the king, you should not miss. In this vein, it is very easy to see this case tossed for legal insufficiency or tied up in the courts well past the 2024 election before it might ever go to trial. It will be a circus that will embolden Trump especially if he walks. And then he ends with, but this kind of case can give credence to Trump to Trump claims of a witch hunt. And I just don't understand why they have to resort to this sort of punditry and playing the prediction game. Like, again, it's the same as in the summer. Remember in when the, the Mar-a-Lago uh, raid, not a raid, like the, the search for documents at Mar-a-Lago. Oh, this will only enrage his, his supporters. It will energize his base. And this will only contribute to a red wave in the midterm elections. And then none of that happened. And yet here we are right again, like, oh, 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 this will only embolden Trump. Why do this? Why? Why do the prediction game? This is just rank punditry. And I just don't understand. And this whole, oh, this kind of case might give credence to Trump's claim of a witch hunt. No, you are doing that. You just gave credence to that by framing it that way. And by by ending, by by sort of making the, the whole column ends with this, right? So... The, 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 sort of the, the interesting and nuanced legal case, that's all forgotten. By the end of the column, it's all just that sort of punditry prediction. Why are we doing this? Let's stop with that. And we can't predict how people are going to react. Although I think that before January 6th, there was a feeling of, of a real tension. Yes. Right? There was a feeling that, yes. something, that something really bad could happen. Absolutely. And that's not the feeling that, no. that we've had in this particular situation. And that's partly because... We could we you could almost predict that because January sixth was about losing power of the most powerful seat, and and that is those are real consequences for every for everyone. This was about Trump being told by a judge that he did something bad, and he that's about him, right? That's about his feelings and him not being happy about an outcome, but it doesn't disempower his voters, right? It doesn't mean that Republicans are no longer able to do the things that they want to do. It's just about Trump and his legal, his legal situation. So you could, you know, you could have predicted to some degree that this is not going to be January 6th. This is not going to be the same thing. The stakes are much, much lower, not only for Trump, but also for all of his supporters. And so you're not going to get the kind of energy that you saw on January 6th. And and also there's, you know, the January 6th prosecutions have had a real effect on people. I mean, a lot of the people that were that, you know, who are talking about right, you know, on these right wing discussion sites talking about violence, we're seeing responses to them that are like, they're going to get you, you know, like you better be careful. It's a trap or, um, you know, this is this is something that you should leave to to Antifa to do. Right. Like <laughs> these kind of ridiculous arguments, but basically saying like. It turns out that when we do this, people we get we get arrested and we go to jail. So, you know, Trump didn't really tell us that the first time. And so maybe we shouldn't do this again. So so it is a different situation now. And I think assuming that it's going to create like another January 6th, using the terminology of the right, calling it a witch hunt, right, like which is not what it is, then it's 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 kind of catastrophizing 
um, in a way that isn't necessary and is probably not helpful and only feeds into the kind of paranoia of the right that we still, that we're still trying to deal with. You know, we're still trying to deal with this. There's still paranoia there. Um, there's still this persecution complex that's happening on the right and it's dangerous and it's not good, but playing into it and assuming it to be even more powerful than it is, is also not helpful. If you are following the smallly democratic discourse, maybe via social media, you know that yesterday, or if you're reading the newspapers, um, you know that yesterday, Tuesday, April 4th, was, has widely been proclaimed a good day for democracy in America. But that's not just because Donald Trump had to go see a judge. I'm assuming most of our listeners are aware that there was also an enormously important election in Wisconsin yesterday. Wisconsin voters elected and I, I hope I'm going to not mess up the name. Protosewitz. Janet Protes. Say that again. Protosewitz. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, Protosewitz. Okay. I, I really, I apologize, but I, I find that a, a very difficult name to pronounce. Okay. She was elected to the Wisconsin Supreme Court by a, a significant margin. This was not a, ultimately not a close election. So these elections are nominally nonpartisan, but... Uh, she was the candidate preferred by Democrats, by the left, by liberals. Um, and her opponent, Dan Kelly, he was very much the candidate. He's a sort of a reactionary candidate, formerly handpicked by former governor of Wisconsin's uh, 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 Scott Walker to uh, previously sit on the Wisconsin Supreme Court. Then he, was, he lost his sort of bid for re-election, and now he was supposed to go back. Um, this election gives liberals the majority on the Wisconsin Supreme Court by four to three votes. It flips the Wisconsin Supreme Court for the first time in 15 years. Liberals will have a majority. Um, okay, that's all well and fine. Um, usually, we're not paying all that much attention to state court elections. Maybe there's some of our listeners out there who are like, wait, I pay attention to every state court election. Well, good on you, but most people don't. Um, so, Lily, there was a lot of attention for this one. I think justifiably so, absolutely, rightfully so. But why? What, what was it about this specific election that is, is not, was not only important, but also actually sort of captured the attention of the, the, the politically interested American public? Yeah. So Wisconsin, I think, is one of those states where the struggle over democracy is most clearly visible and I think is actually yeah. most passionately being fought. Um, the the state is a 50-50 Democrats and Republicans state, but the because of gerrymandering, that was approved by the state Supreme Court, this where exactly where Protosewitz was just elected to, which has been majority conservative for a long time. The gerrymandering makes it so that it is impossible, impossible for Democrats to have a majority of the state legislature. Even in elections where the Democrat wins the governor's seat the state legislature is still, you know, less 40% Democrats or less. So it is, it is, the gerrymandering is so extreme that it is possible for Democrats to just never win elections or never be in charge of the, of the state apparatus. That's not democracy, right? We, I think we all agree that if, if a majority of the state uh, is voting for Democrats and 60% of the state legislature is Republicans and they can do whatever they want in the state legislature, we're not getting good democratic outcomes and people are not being well represented. And, and Wisconsin really is the state that is the most dramatic example of this, of gerrymandering creating a political reality that is different from what the voters actually want. Uh, it is by far the worst. Is that, and so the state Supreme Court does get say over these maps, these, these, uh, these, these gerrymandered maps. And so it has been this majority conservative Supreme Court that's approved them in the past. If they come up in the future now during this term, then then there will be a majority liberal justices who will likely um, not approve of maps that are so deeply gerrymandered in such an anti-democratic way. The other big deal is uh, is the issue of abortion in Wisconsin, uh, where abortion access is broadly supported in the population. The majority of the of the state wants there to be abortion access, and the defeated candidate Daniel Kelly who was the conservative judge who had actually previously been on the Supreme Court. He was coming back. He was trying, he was running to return to, to the, to the Wisconsin Supreme Court. Um, 
has been relatively clear that he is he's not a pro-choice candidate. Proto Sawitz was very clear that she was a pro-choice um, candidate that she believed that that abortion was a right that people uh, people that people had. And uh, there is an abortion case coming up in Wisconsin that will be before the almost certainly will be before the the the, the state supreme court um, pretty soon. That is uh, based on an idea to reinstate a an abortion ban, which was enacted in 1849, 70 years before women could vote, that would severely restrict access to abortion, if not ban it altogether. I mean, that is the situation right now, isn't it? Like, isn't that the sort of with the the moment sort of uh, uh, Roe v. That's Wade true. It's was currently turned yeah. right. That that was the situation. Wisconsin fell back to. This law that dates back to 1849 that had been sort of overridden by right by Roe v. Wade saying no, you can't do this, but but it was still on the books basically, right? Is that that right. I think is the situation, right? So this week apparently there's going to be a circuit court um, listening to arguments on a case that would undo that. That's what it right. was. Um, but whichever way that that circuit court rules, it's going to go. It's going to keep going up to the state supreme court, right? It'll be appealed. Um, and so having Protosewitz on the court and having a liberal majority on the court will effectively protect, will re- reinstate the right to abortion in the state and allow um, people in Wisconsin to have control over their bodies. So it's it's sort of a, it's both, you know, restoring previously held rights to people in the state. And it's a matter of whether or not there actually is democratic representation in the state, whether the small d, whether there is democracy in the state and whether the system actually does respond to what voters want. And I, th- I think we can, we can even add a, a, a sort of component beyond like democracy in Wisconsin, yes or no, right to abortion in Wisconsin, yes or no. It also has strong implications regarding the presidential elections because mm-hmm. Wisconsin obviously is a swing state and it, it was decided by, I think the last two presidential elections, it was decided by what, 20,000 votes or so each time. And in 2020, it was very central to Trump's attempts to nullify the, the, the results of the 2020 elections because he tried to get, like, I think over 200,000 uh, 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 votes from counties in Wisconsin that leaned Democratic. He tried to get them discounted, get them tossed. Mm-hmm. Um, that didn't work. But um, I think three of the uh, four conservative justices on the Wisconsin Supreme Court seemed uh, let's just say surprisingly open to Trump's argument that those votes should be tossed. So there was a, a danger here, right? That, um, you know, had the, this Dan Kelly guy become the, so the, the deciding for vote on, on, on the Supreme Court that in 2024, they might've gotten even further with these sort of schemes to, to nullify the election results. So that is now much less of a danger, obviously, uh, mm-hmm. with the liberals being in charge of the of the Supreme Court. Um, which is, I mean, again, we should always always listen to what the uh, the right wingers say themselves. I, I think you had um, Ali Alexander, one of the he of uh, um, January six fame. He tweeted something like, "Oh, um, I see no way to two hundred and seventy uh, uh, votes now um, in twenty twenty four, which is like makes no sense unless yeah. you understand that they." <laughs> They they're rigging they could, the election. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they could rig the election if only they had uh, control of the Wisconsin Supreme Court. Um, so, okay, so so why? So this was not a close call, uh, ultimately, right? In I the think, end. Yeah, I think she In won the end, by, she won by 10 points. 10 points, yeah, yeah. yeah. Which is, again, this is a very, like, uh, it's a purple state, basically a 50-50, slightly leaning Democratic kind of state. Um, but this vote was not, this was a clearer sort of outcome. What what are we making of this? Um, my sense is that this is very much sort of reminds me very much of what happened in the in in the midterm elections in in 2022, because this was very much framed as on the one hand Democratic candidate or preferred by Democrats of candidate running as pro-abortion and pro-democracy, and the other candidate just say crime, crime, crime all the time, right? Mm-hmm. Dan Kelly was just, oh, Democrats, like soft on crime and, and all this sort of stuff. And it seems like something that happened in November 2022 happened again, which is there is just a, a, a in these purple states, in these battleground states, there's a reliable majority 
if they feel like there's a MAGA or MAGA adjacent candidate that will threaten the right to abortion and will threaten sort of American democracy, they're coming out to vote that guy down. That seems to have happened again. Is, is that a plausible way to look at this? Yeah. And actually, I think even, um, you know, we often lament the kind of nationalization of politics. And, and you could argue this is one of the most nationalized local yeah. elections ever. I mean, it is the most expensive judicial election in the history of American uh, yeah. politics. And so there were just there was a lot of money pouring in from people who did not live in Wisconsin to both candidates. And the polling looked tight. Right. During the during the run up, it was not clear who was going to win this election and to win by 10 actually looks like 11 points. Yep. is a huge is a huge victory. And and so it's almost like it's sort of bucking that trend of the nationalization, the 50 50 Republican Democratic kind of the split of of national politics where it comes down to the wire. It's half and half. You know, we don't know who's going to win and the money pours in from outside and, and ultimately the national parties decide who wins. I think it's pretty clear here that the people of Wisconsin decided that they they weren't really voting based on national national party labels. They were voting based on what they wanted their state to look like. I mean, to be fair, like this is, you know, people in Wisconsin have been feeling that their state is not very democratic, uh, small yes. d democratic. I mean, they know this is they They literally are the worst state for disproportionate gerrymandering and disenfranchisement of people in the Democratic Party. So the state was already probably pretty sensitive to threats to democracy, even further threats to democracy. And the abortion issue really motivates people. I mean, it is truly a it's one of these issues that most people agree we should not be restricting women's access to health care. We just shouldn't be doing it. Yeah. And like. Regardless of your personal position on abortion, there are pl plenty of pro-life people even who don't think that the government should be telling women when they can get health care. And the the idea that this guy is kind of pushing forward the white, the you know, kind of white patriarchy, white Christian patriarchy line of that is, you know, this increasingly, increasingly radical side of the of the right of the Republican Party. It's not that popular. Like people don't like it. And especially in a place like Wisconsin where it's where it's divided, you know, it's not a part of it's a it's a it's a swing state. It's a it's divided right down the middle, especially in a place like that where you have half of the citizens being like, I'm not being represented by my government. So I certainly better have some rights, you know, that are guaranteed to me by the Supreme Court. People are sort of thinking about this and it's it's not reflexive partisan voting. It's not just simply um you know, people just showing up in the voting booth and, and you know, and doing straight down the line voting. It's people who got who got up to go vote for this particular election because they felt really strongly about it. And so it's I, I find it to be a hopeful, a hopeful election. The other thing that, that was that I think is really hopeful uh, for this particular election is that the young voters came out in huge numbers. Um, it does look like young voters are becoming like the Gen Z voters are becoming a pretty impressive political force, like very few generations have been when they were young. You know, there are now multiple elections in a row where young voters have made the difference between Democrats and Republicans winning and or pro-democracy people and anti-democracy people winning, to be to be clear. And they are, you know, it's a they're young. They usually young people don't vote in American politics. Usually young people are kind of disconnected from politics. But this generation does seem to be paying attention. And they have now voted three national elections in a row to get Democratic candidates elected, to get pro-democracy candidates elected. By the way, from the, the study of political socialization, in the, ge the general rule of thumb is if you vote for the same party three times in a row during your formative years, that's it. You're in the party. <laughs> like You're not going to leave. It's just the way that people form their political identities. And so this, this is an actually like formative time yep. for these people, for these voters who are going to be probably lifelong Democrats because the Republican Party has so alienated them by destroying their environment killing them in their schools, allowing yep. guns to proliferate, taking away their their access to health care, you know, not allowing them to, you know, threatening to take away access to birth control. It's effectively like everything that this, that this generation needs, the Republican Party wants to take away. And so now they are, they were, uh, they the numbers were record turnout for this generation in Wisconsin. They were even more than even more of them turned out in this election than than turned out in the in the first the like runoff election that they had. Um, uh, a few months ago. 
and and so it does seem like this is another another example of the of the increasing engagement of the younger generation which is really concerned about whether they're growing up in a democracy, whether they're becoming adults in a democracy, whether they have the rights that their parents had, the same rights that their parents had, or whether those rights are being stripped from them. And that's, and that's a, I think, a reassuring thing for me to see. They're also the most diverse generation in, hist- in the history of the country, right? They're, they, they are tolerant of each other. They're racially diverse. Obviously, there are like the Charlie Kirks out there that are, you know, that are young people that are completely off off the off the grid in terms of thinking about democracy but but this is this is a this is one of those ways that we can we can see a future where democracy is protected in this country and it's and it's these young voters that I think are going to end up being the the key to that so if we end it here it would sound like hey Yesterday was a really good day for American democracy. Things are things are looking things are looking great. Um, the legal system is finally holding Trump accountable, maybe or at least trying to. And you know the sort of anti MAGA, um, the anti MAGA coalition is, is is holding strong, is is holding the line for democracy. But maybe we should complicate the picture a little bit, right? Because there's also other stuff going on. Um, in in America, especially on on the state level, and and one thing we should at least mention, we're not going to probably go into much detail here, is what's been happening in Tennessee. So, if you remember, um, last week, early last week, there was yet another mass shooting at a school in Nashville, Tennessee, that left I think three children and three um, of the school staff dead. They were murdered, and then protests started, especially young people started protesting for gun reform um, and demanding from their elected officials to do something uh, about this. That led to a situation in which um, I think think on this Monday, it was over 7,000 school children marching to the Capitol um, demanding gun safety legislation. This led to a situation in which some of these protesters entered the, uh, the state assembly, they, they did that legally, right? This was not a, this was not January 6th redux, even though that's what you'll hear from all those of conservative channels. Um, entered legally, they had a right to be there, they had to go through security. Uh, they so were children. Was, yes, they were, also they were children. Largely children. No weapons. <laughs> um, yes. And then three Democratic lawmakers um, sort of joined in with the protests. So they, they I think... They used the what they used the bullhorn to 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 you know mm-hmm. uh, join the the demands, the chance for uh, you know do something, uh, give us a gun 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 regulations, um, and and this has now led to Republican lawmakers taking steps to expel these three Democrats for again the crime was using a bullhorn on the floor of the state house um, to. I don't know, help protesters. Um, it is representatives Gloria Johnson, Justin Jones, and Justin Pearson that are being expelled. I think the final vote um, over whether or not they're going to be actually expelled is, is, to, is scheduled tomorrow, for Thursday. Tomorrow, yeah. Thursday, exactly. Um, but probably when this is going to come out. Um, mm-hmm. So we, we don't quite know how this is going to go, but considering that you know, Republicans have a supermajority in the assembly, they're holding, I think, 75,099 seats. Probably, you know, uh, seems like these people will be expelled. Uh, we should mention it is two black men and a woman um, in a state that has a horrible, horrible history of disenfranchising people of color. Um, now they're just throwing them out of the out of the out of the assembly. Um, so, Lily, I don't know. Do you have any sort of what are some of your main thoughts on on what's happening there in Tennessee and how again this is also happening right now? It's not not just. Trump in Manhattan. It's not just Wisconsin. It's also this. Um, what are some of your, your thoughts on on what's been happening in Tennessee? Yeah. The so one thing to note here is that expelling members is extraordinarily rare. Yeah. This is not something that happens all the time. Um, the last time that it did happen, it was for repeated sexual abuse. Someone who was convicted <laughs> of repeated sexual abuse, and there was another case who where someone was accused of repeated sexual abuse who was who they did not vote to expel. Someone had suggested they should expel him, and they did not. So, 
Um, apparently, there's all kinds of shenanigans that happen in the Tennessee courthouse. I mean, sorry, state house that I didn't even know about. There's like stories about people peeing in each other's seats, people like <laughs> acting like absolutely, absolutely childishly. And none of these people were expelled for doing these types of things. Um, so it is not a normal thing to do to expel an elected leader right? People who, who voted for this person to be their representative, their constituents voted them in. What they're talking about doing is having everyone else the, in, the, in the House vote them out to decide, actually, no, what these constituents wanted is not going to happen because I didn't like it when you supported the protesters. The protesters, importantly, were on the balcony in the House. So the, it wasn't like there were protesters outside and these people came inside and started like making a ruckus. The the these representatives they they the protesters were on the balcony in the house and and the and the representatives supported them from the floor. Uh, that's they held up a sign um, and they were were supporting them from the floor. The Republicans have called that an insurrection, which is an ironic use of that word. Um, there was no violence. There were no threats. No one was in danger. Uh, it was again a bunch of children, literally from stroller to high to high school age. There were small children there. It was not a threatening situation, and and these representatives have said that this is one of those situations where you know they they want they they agreed with the protesters. They think that there should be common sense gun reform. They want pe- kids to stop dying in the schools in their state. They don't think it should be as easy for people to get guns. We're, we should we in the future will have an entire episode on guns because that's clearly like a huge threat to democracy and we don't have time to do all of that today. But um, but for this particular case, these three legislators were saying I needed to make a point, right? There was no other we- other way for, for, for me to explain how important this is. And these kids needed to have a voice. And it, to expel them for that, is, which is their right. It was their right to to speak out of turn in the house, right? They're not. It's against the rules technically, but it is. They are certainly allowed to speak out of turn. They should not be kicked out of their elected office. It's a breach of decorum, right? That's yes. that's what it is. But there's no like. It absolutely doesn't say anywhere. If you do this, you're going to be expelled from. No, yeah. no, not at all, not at all. Um, and and so this is, you know, th- this is the type of thing where. They shouldn't, by any logical means, for any logical reasons, be expelled, except that Republicans felt threatened by what they were doing. They felt threatened by the protesters. It's really hard for Republicans to find an answer to small children saying, please make me stop being murdered. Like, my friends are being murdered. I don't want to be murdered. I'm terrified of guns. For Republicans to have to come around and say, like, well, too bad. You know, like, there's no good answer. And so their answer here is apparently shutting the door on these people, covering their ears and, and screaming la la la, right? They just don't want to be confronted with it. They don't want to have to answer those questions. They are intentionally trying to ignore the problem. And this is what that looks like, is removing removing elected people from office because they made the Republicans feel uncomfortable. So to me, this is, if we're thinking about, so what does this mean in the big scheme of things? Um, to me, it's first and foremost a, a reminder of how far Republicans are willing to go to entrench and, and sort of secure their hold on power, right? I mean, it's just very clear that these Republican lawmakers do not consider the Democratic elected officials as sort of uh, legitimate uh, mm-hmm. political opponents. They consider them as enemies. They consider them as you don't really have you don't really have a right to be here, and, and if if you threaten sort of the, the the only these Republicans consider themselves the only rightful proponents of real America or what, whatever they call it, and you know um, the way they are treating the political opposition is not the way you would treat again a political opponent in a democratic system. They're just treating them as you have no rights, um, and if 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 you so threaten our authority in any way, you're out, right? Um, so, so that is, I think, a, a, a good reminder of, of, of sort of a, a highly asymmetrical political conflict in which one side has decided, the Republican side has decided, the other side is not a legitimate political opponent, but a sort of fundamentally un-American threat to the natural order or whatever. It's also a reminder of, again, regardless of how, you know, all the good things that happened yesterday, there is still, on the state level specifically, this sort of 
escalating authoritarian assault on the, the political system, on American democracy going on. And that is that that keeps happening. That's just not you know, nothing in a way that hasn't changed. And if anything, it's only going to accelerate. Um, nothing has changed just because Trump has been indicted or just because um, Democrats won an election in Wisconsin. This is this is happening. So, you know, we have to be a little, I think, careful with the uh, euphoria about what happened about yesterday being like a, a great day. Take the wins, but don't don't forget everything else that's happening. The Tennessee state legislature is apparently so my dog is making noises. No worries. I think dog dogs dog sounds on the podcast is great. He's like yawning. I guess we're being boring. Um, dogs don't like politics. <laughs> it's dinner. Uh, the optics of this are pretty ridiculous where, yep. you know, this is a bunch of white dudes telling a woman and two black men yep. that they need to be punished for using their voice and, and being yep. out of their place. Right. Yeah, exactly. You are you are being too loud. You are in the way. You are not allowed to be standing there. I get to tell you what to do. You deserve punishment and I have the authority to punish you. Right. That is the optics of this of this entire situation. It's not just the optics. It is the power dynamics. Uh, and the and and so this is, you know. I think the one the one also kind of silly element of this is that even if they are removed, there will be a special election in which they can run again and put them. I mean, and like and their constituents can just put them right back. There will be representatives from these places and people will elect somebody who will represent them. It's not going, you know, the people of those of these small blue places in Tennessee are going to have representation. You can't eliminate their representation. And that's, you know, you can I guess what they're doing is to they're trying to pause it. But. But ultimately, you know, eliminating the very small number of Democrats in the state legislature is is it's focused on the wrong place. It's not addressing any real problems. It's it's punitive. It's not even I wouldn't even call it like a backlash to to power. I would just say that it's like punishment of people who they believe shouldn't have power. Yeah. And and it, it it doesn't look like like a democracy working. It just doesn't. It's not how democracies should work if everybody actually has the same amount. This isn't, this isn't even like one voter, you know, like one person, one vote. This is like each representative should have the same amount of power, right? Like the representatives who are elected should all have the same amount of power and they should all be able to have the same kind of voice. And they, and what they're, what they're saying right now is no, not everyone has the same kind of voice. Like if I don't like the way that you're talking and I don't think that you should talk that way and makes me uncomfortable when you talk that way, I want you to leave and I have the power to tell you to leave. So one dimension that maybe we could tackle as, as we're coming probably towards the end of our conversation here, but um, with all these things that are happening, and by the way, Florida also just, I think, passed a, a super strict six-week abortion ban, and the stuff, the, the assault on the civil rights order is, that keeps happening, right? So every day, if you pay attention, every day in, in Republican-led states around the country, that stuff keeps happening. Um, so some people took this to mean yesterday specifically. Forget about Trump. Don't pay attention to Trump. Um, what happens in Manhattan, that doesn't matter. What actually matters is Wisconsin. What actually matters is Tennessee. Um, that's where all our, our attention should be. And as, as generally sympathetic as I am to the case for, to, to people who make the case for paying more attention to the state level, I think that is generally absolutely right. I'm also, um, I'm not entirely on board with this sort of framing. Like, forget about Trump; this doesn't matter. Pay just pay attention to Tennessee, pay attention to Wisconsin, because I do think that Trump also matters, right? What happens there also matters. And I, I read um, uh, a great column by Julia Zari in Politico, who could have made the case. She she made the case that look this Trump thing, the 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 legal authorities trying to hold the ex president accountable. It's a it, that's a genuinely new political development, right? Because up mm. until yesterday, basically, oh wait, up until last week, maybe when when the indictment was made public, it was by functionally that the president and ex presidents of the United States were above the law, basically, because no one had ever like. No one ever actually tried to hold them legally accountable in that way. And, and that has now changed. And so, you know, I think the people who tell us this 
doesn't matter are running the risk of making exactly the mistake they say others make. Because they, they basically tell others, hey, you are singling out Trump as this exceptionally important thing. You shouldn't do this. But if you say Trump being indicted doesn't matter, you are also singling him out, or you also sort of, sort of only with a diff- you're drawing a different conclusion from it, but you're also exceptionalizing him from the overall political conflict. And, you, and you're basically saying, look, the actual conflict is somewhere else. Don't let the Trump show distract you from the rise of red state authoritarianism. I, I get it. I agree. Pay attention to what's happening in red states. But I think it's, it would be better if we could so focus our attention on how this is all connected, how this is not two separate things. It's not Trump over here and red states over there as two separate things. It's, it's one big political conflict, and we should see it in, in connection with each other. Only then, I think, we can make sense of this all. We should be thinking of this as a whole. We should re- be reminding ourselves that this is a project of, pr- of protecting you know, pluralistic democracy and that the attacks on pluralistic democracy come at the national and at the state level. Uh, and they're, they're dangerous everywhere they are. We should really sort of start thinking more about the different arms and strands of this sort of anti-democratic assault on the system and how they serve different functions, right? What Republican lawmakers are doing in these states that's just one strand of this sort of anti-democratic assault. But then Trump fulfills, Trump and sort of his supporters, they also fulfill a different role in this. They are more the shock troops, the, the kind of like, you know, the, 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 the I don't know, uh, uh, the militant sort of extremist ground troops for this kind of thing. And, and then there's the, the judicial arm of this, which is led by the Supreme Court. And then there's the propaganda arm or the, the media arm of this, Fox News and all that. But these are not separate things, right? So I'm, I'm not comfortable with people saying, don't pay attention to Trump. Don't be distracted by Trump. Pay attention to the states. I would say, yes, don't be distracted by Trump if you think it's just Trump. But also, don't, don't, don't sort of, you know, don't forget how on the level of an underlying political project, this is one, this is one assault on, on, the America, on the American democracy, on the civil rights order. It is one political project. Um, it is one conflict. And only if we start seeing it in, its, uh, in the way it is connected, um, can we, I think, come up with answers and, and, and responses to it that are commensurate with the problem. We'll end it there. That's um, that's it for today. All of this, as always, to be continued, of course. Um, just a few housekeeping notes before we go. Please note that we will not be recording a new episode next week. We are taking a bit of a spring break, um, which I believe we deserve, but also just logistically <laughs> next week. Um, it would have been really difficult to find a day and time to record something. So again, um, no new episode next week. Our next episode will be coming out two weeks from now. So one week off and then we'll be back. If you haven't yet, please do subscribe on the podcast player of your choice. If you want to support the podcast, that is the best way you can do that. Is you, know, you, can, you can leave us a rating, a review. Um, I say that every week because it is really important. These ratings, these reviews, they really help us. Um, they help the podcast find an audience. They, they tell the, the podcast algorithm, uh, the, the algorithm of these players that our podcast is, 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 is worthy of being amplified. Um, if you have any feedback, please email us at thisdisdemocracy.gmail.com. Thanks, as always, to our wonderful producer, Connor Lynch, who is making all this good stuff happen. And thanks to you for taking the time to listen. And we'll be, we will be back soon. Bye-bye.